0: Good morning Bridgeway, good to see everyone, hi to everyone watching online as well, good morning to you. Uh, we need all the time that we have to go through the passage, so we're going to make the intro very short. Take out the handout sheet that was given to you in the front door and I will draw your attention to that fill in the blank. Uh, the rest of our material is going to be on the screens as we're combining Matthew, Mark and Luke today. We are in part 43 of our being Jesus series and I entitled today's message grasping God and I just want to share one thought uh, as we get to the fill in the blank It's this the Bible suggests that we will worship forever the Bible says that we are going to praise God all the time and it's not going to get boring. And I don't know, and we're so used to that whole idea of diminishing returns, you know, that anything about worshiping all for eternity sounds weird. I mean, it, we've always had these pictures, even as a kid, it sounded super odd. You're up there and you got your little harp, you're like, ding, right? And you're sitting on this little lame cloud or whatever and, and you're, and you're just kind of like, really, that's all we're going to do here. Here's why I don't think it's going to be like that. Here's why I don't think it's going to be boring. Um, someone suggested to me the other day, um, and maybe I've shared this with you, but it was so impactful to me. They were talking about the four living creatures around the throne and they talked about the fact that the way that it's written seems to suggest they were doing a call and response that one would cry out a glory of God and the other one would respond with worship and praise. And the idea was that every time on the different sides of the throne, every time they looked at God, they saw a new Side of him a new revelation of him a new glorious picture of him a new part of him And they were so stunned that they would cry out glory and praise and the other one would say well Look at what I see. Well, look at what I see. Well, look what I see and all they would do was fire back The reason why I don't believe it's going to be boring to worship forever in heaven is I think we're going to be continually impressed over and over and over. God does not diminish. He's that great to where every time you look at him, the Bible says right now we look at him through a glass darkly, but then we'll see him face to face. We literally have to have transfigured bodies just to be able to contain what we're about to see. And every time you see God for eternity, you will see something new. And that means all the time you have fresh revelation of God and you are so amazed you can't help but say, wow, and that is glory and worship. And the reason why this is so important is the fill in the blank in front of you is this. Jesus is far more than who you think he is. Jesus is far more than who you think he is. I don't know how great and glorious Jesus is in your mind how amazing he is in your heart, what kind of relationship you have with him, but whatever it is, he is infinitely more than that. There are two stories we're going to walk through where Jesus is going to give us that kind of idea and hopefully it will expand out our hearts so we may have more room for awe. We begin with just uh, one couple lines here and then I'm going to show you some photos to set the context for our time together. So why don't we throw up the first scripture on the screen? It says this, and Jesus went on with his disciples into the district, into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, because the location alters the context, I got to share with you the location. I've had the opportunity to go to Caesarea Philippi, at least the ruins of what used to be. Caesarea Philippi. And so I'm going to throw up some photos there. What we'll do in the back, if you can just throw up the photos and then just kind of cycle through them, uh, and their pictures walking you up through the archaeological area of Caesarea Philippi. If you ever have a desire to go to uh, the Holy Land, we actually have a pastor um, this next year who's leading a trip to go over to Israel. If you have an interest in that, by all means, contact the office. Uh, You can even talk with Pastor Matt Bach. You can just directly contact him on the city. It's B-A-C-H. He's going to be leading a trip on over there with Richard Rolfing and other gentlemen at our church, and they have a whole itinerary set up. So if you want to go see this kind of stuff, they're ready to go. They're ready to take and hang out with you. So uh, going back to this, Caesarea Philippi was a critical city, and Jesus brought his disciples here. It's 25 to 30 miles from where they normally hang out. So it was a very purposeful field trip. They go out there and they wander up and it's at kind of the base of uh, Mount Hermon. And these are a couple things you need to know about it. It is not Caesarea maritime. Caesarea maritime was actually the place where King Herod Agrippa had his palace and where he died. Uh, That is actually down on the coast So they are all distinguished Caesarea means city of Caesar and then who built it or who it was named after is the next word. So this is Caesarea Philippi named after Philip, Philip, a tetrarch. They're now out of their normal jurisdiction, hanging out in a Gentile area of the other brother. All right. So why this is so important is that this area is a massively religious place. It used to be called, back in the ancient days, Balinus, because it was the main center of the worship of Baal. Have you ever heard of the, the god Baal? That's kind of the Old Testament. If it was Elijah against the prophets of Baal, all that bad pagan worship in the Old Testament, that was Baal, right? So he, this used to be his center of worship. Well, then when the Greeks came around, they brought in all their gods and goddesses stuff. This is known as the birthplace of the God Pan. Remember the little half goat, half man, little cloven hooves plays the flute guy. That's Pan. All right. He was the God of the woods and the hunters and the gatherers and, and the hills and all that he and another goddess, they were kind of connected in some weird, creepy, uh, sexual stuff that how they would do the worship. This was believed to be his home place. There's a cavern here that back in the ancient world, they couldn't find the bottom to. They thought it was the whole source of the Jordan River. It's actually one of three sources of the Jordan River. And they believe that Pan emerged out of that cavern and began to rule into the world of man. So they built these huge temples to him. And as a matter of fact, it was so heavy with pagan worship There were, in just this area, 14 temples, 14 pagan temples of worship. So you're now in the center of it all. But there was one temple that was bigger than the rest, and it was built by Herod the Great. It was a massive, white, marble, shining, beautiful temple, and it was built to the God Caesar. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, you had one responsibility, and that was each year you needed to acknowledge the fact that your emperor, your king, was not just a man, he was a god. You needed to take a pinch of incense from the altar, throw it into the fire and say, Caesar is God. You would refer to him in phrases like he is the king of kings. You would talk to him about him being the savior of mankind. And you realize all these words should make you feel kind of yucky because all these alarms should go off. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa that, that's not okay. That's not, that's not Right. Well, you're absolutely right, but their view and their worship of Caesar created these massive temples, so right here, Caesar was viewed as God. The other thing that we need to understand is that this is an extremely political place. Uh, Back in uh, 198 BC, we're now going 200 years before Jesus was born, there was a massive transition period that there was big families that ran politics around Alexander the Great's time. One of his generals kind of ran the area and it went from one family and it switched power to the other. It went from the Ptolemy family to the Seleucid family. And you go, why does that matter? It matters because when that shift happened in 198 BC, Judaism was outlawed. Now that's a big deal because now all of a sudden persecution started hitting the Jewish people. It was that persecution that got so intense, it led to the Maccabean Revolt, which is where we get Hanukkah and all that stuff. All that rich history of where they would fight against the Roman Empire, that all got started right here. This is a very, very rich place. As a matter of fact, after Philip died, this was expanded out by the next leader, and he renamed it Neronius over Emperor Nero, who we know is a super bad guy. They expanded out the area, put in gladiator games, and began to kill the Jewish people. So in this background, Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip and asks them a very critical question. And here's what it says. Let's go back to the passage. Now, on the way, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do people, who do the crowd say the son of man is? Who do they say that I am? And they answered, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets of old has risen from the dead. Here's his point on this backdrop. Backdrop everybody's got gods. Everybody's got opinions. I want to know, what do you think is the opinion of everybody out there about who I am? And we live in that same kind of view, right? I mean, there's a lot of faiths and religions and denominations and groups that think different things about Jesus. They would say, well, I think Jesus is like, he's like one, he's one God of many. Or others would say, no, he's not a God. He's just a good guy. Well, "Well, he's a teacher. No, he's a prophet. No, everybody's got an opinion. So Jesus first on this backdrop said out of all the religions of the world and what everybody thinks, who do they think I am? So they began to throw out some ideas. They're like, well, let me tell you, actually, some people think you're John the Baptist. Now, of course, that's silly because they lived at the same time. But by the time they asked this question, John the Baptist had been beheaded. Now, John the Baptist was the last big dog to hit the scene. After 400 years of silence, where God did not speak to the Jewish people, a prophet arose and he said, thus saith the Lord. That was John the Baptist. Everyone was like, whoa, God's back in town he's now speaking through his people. So they really respected John the Baptist. John the Baptist got his head cut off because of a dumb king and a wild dance. That's not a good idea. So when he killed John the Baptist and they beheaded him, everyone's like, Ooh, I think you got some bad mojo on you. I don't, I don't think you should have done that. So now some people are like, Oh man, that's John the Baptist come back from the dead. No, John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin and they actually lived at the same time. So that's kind of a dumb idea. So they thought, well, maybe you're, you're Elijah back from the dead. Why would they think that? Because all the Jews knew that when the Messiah showed up, Elijah would be the forerunner. He would be the herald. He would say, and here comes the Messiah. They knew that they had, they still today believe that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come in. And Jesus said, yeah, that was fulfilled by John the Baptist too. He was the, he was the Elijah. Remember they kind of looked alike. They kind of hung out alike. They kind of set the same tone. Yeah, that's been done. That's not good. And then they said, well, maybe he's Jeremiah back from the dead. Now, what do you know about Jeremiah? You know, all we know usually is that he's the crying guy, right? He's the prophet, the weeping prophet, the one that was so heartbroken over Israel. He, his tears kept flowing now, is Jesus like Jeremiah? Was Jesus a man of many sorrows? Yeah. Was his heart broken for Israel? Yeah. But is that what they're talking about? No. Here's what they're talking about. There was a tradition that before Israel went into exile to Babylon, where they lost all their land, Jeremiah, knowing they were going to be captured, grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense from the temple and he snuck them away and hid them in a mountain cave. And he was the only one who knew where they were. The tradition went on to say, when the Messiah shows up, Jeremiah will come back to life, get his gear, bring it back out. So when the glory falls, now we have Israel back on the map. They're going, maybe he's Jeremiah. No. So they had all these different opinions. Well, but then Jesus asked the real question that he's getting to. And this is a question that we have to answer. And then he asked them, but who do you, that's plural, right? That's a y'all. Who do you plural guys, my team, we're on a field trip. It's just us 12 and me who do you say that I am? Meaning there's no more emotion about it. I'm not doing any miracles. I'm not doing something freaky or crazy. I'm not multiplying bread. I'm not healing people. I'm not casting demons. This is now on a quiet day. I want you to fully assess, are you in? Are you not? Who am I to you? Now we asked the whole group. So who's going to say something? It's always Peter. Yeah. So here he goes. Simon Peter answered him. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one we've been waiting for. The one that will ultimately save us from our sins. You are everything that we need. You are the son of the living God. Now that once again was not an emotional response. That was a flat out. I'll talk for the group. I'm all in. I know who you are and I'm signing on the dotted line right now. Look at Jesus' response. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Now what is bar only means son of, right? So Simon, son of Jonah, why Jonah? Actually the Greek name is John. The Hebrew name is Yohanan and the Aramaic name is Jonah so it's all the same name. If you are, your name is John, you now have three other options, right? You can sign whatever you want on there and just go, I'm going Aramaic today, right? You, that's cool. You're allowed to do that. Sounds super biblical. <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What he's saying is Peter, listen, man, you're normally up and down. You're all over the map. I know that I've told you that I'm changing your demeanor, but really you're kind of everywhere. But today, this really isn't about you. My father's speaking through you. He's saying something through you that is so critical, so important, so valuable. As a matter of fact, Simon, you couldn't even have come up with this idea on your own anyway. There's no way that you would have had a settled conviction, an absolute belief and faith and confidence in who I was if my dad didn't allow you to do that. So right now you are speaking, not just from your own heart, you are speaking prophetically from my dad in heaven of about who I am. He said, I want you to understand the atmosphere of what's going on here. This is not just a normal meeting. This is not just normal questions. You are now stating what is going to occur. And I want you to know how important it is. So let me respond to you. And then Jesus says something that changed the course of history. We are living in this change right now and have been for 2000 years. Here's what he said. And it's been very misunderstood. And I tell you, you are Petros. That is a masculine word. That is the name Peter in Aramaic. It's Kephas. You are rock. You are a rock. Your name is Peter. And on this rock Petra, which is a feminine form, people go, Oh, maybe what does that mean? In, in actually the Aramaic he would have used Kephas at this, both on both sides. So I don't think there's much difference between the words. I know a lot of people make a big deal, but actually in Aramaic, it's not different. It's the same. And I tell you, you are Peter, a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Right there, you have the germinating thought and concept that launched the Roman Catholic church and launched the Pope. So have things been different for the last 2000 years? Are there any Catholics in the world? Yeah. Okay. You kind of get it, right? I mean, it literally shaped a whole concept. Now, not all of Catholicism is locked into one passage. There's a lot of different passages that, that they feel very much backs up and supports how the Roman Catholic church works. But if we're talking about apostolic succession, why there can be a Pope, you're looking at it right there. Why? Cause here's how they read it. Peter was selected out by God, To be the full authority, the infallible and all-powerful authority that Jesus gave all authority to. So Peter was the first pope, the first bishop of Rome. He then had to transfer and impart it to the next pope. So, and then the next one got it and the next one got it. And so there was always one head of the church because the church was empowered by God to discern his will, open up doors, lock down doors. They had full authority on earth to forgive sins, to deny people. They had all access all the way down to the Pope we have today, Pope Francis. Now, is that what it says? That's the big thing. Now, we happen to be in a Protestant church. So most people are going to go, ah, no way. That's not what it says. Well, let's talk about that because you actually have to look at all the different words. Let's find out what it does mean, because here's what's intriguing. Uh, People have had all kinds of opinions on what it means. There's actually four major Protestant opinions on what it means. Let me give you those options first before we dive into it, because really it has to do with who's the rock and what's going on, right? So the first option is this, is it Jesus himself? Did it go something like this? Hey, Peter, you're a rock, but upon this rock, and he pointed to himself, I'm going to build my church. Is, Is that, is that legit? And you go, well, okay, that could be totally legitimate because we know that Jesus Christ is the rock. He says, the wise man builds his house upon the rock and the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Who is he talking about but himself? And you go, okay, so Jesus is the rock. All right, so maybe that's your option. What about second one? Is it the truth that Jesus Christ is the savior of mankind? Is that what God's going to build his church on? Meaning, listen, the gospel. Is he saying, Peter, what you just said, that message right there That is going to be what I'm going to build my church on. Everybody that believes in the gospel and in me, I will give the right to become sons and daughters of God and they will be my family. Is that what it means? Or is it number three, Peter's faith? It's not necessarily the information. It was that Peter said, I trust you full force. And that faith activated all that God was doing. And he said, through that belief, if you believe in me, You will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. And through that faith, I will build the church. Is that what it is? Or is there another option? I'm going to suggest to you that my particular view based on study is actually the fourth. The fourth view is that it is actually talking about Peter, but not quite how you think. Most grammarians or people that study grammar, especially in foreign languages, And as a matter of fact, all the most hardcore commentaries that I studied on this subject all agree on this one issue. He's talking to Peter. All the language shapes back to pointing to Peter. As a matter of fact, there's a bunch of ways that if Jesus wanted to turn the story and go, I'm going to build it on me, and this was actually all about Jesus or all about faith or all about um, truth, it should have been written different. This is written in such a way that it does center around Peter initially. So why? Follow with me. Peter is a special kind of rock. He is the first living stone built on the cornerstone of Jesus. In other words, the true rock is God. We know that, and all the ancient Jews knew that. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament calls God the rock over and over and over and over. It says, who is a rock like our God? God is my rock and my fortress. So we know God is the ultimate bedrock. God is the foundation of all things. But then the Old Testament also uses the word rock to describe anyone that God moves through to do His will. So Abraham is called the rock in the Old Testament. Meaning that through Abraham, God built the Jewish people So he is a rock like God. Well, in the same way, Peter is a rock like God because God is moving through him. And here's why he's so critical. It doesn't depend on Peter. He was just the first member of the church. In other words, as the leader of the apostles, he has influence, but not a greater spiritual authority we know that Peter is fallible because he kept getting rebuked by everybody. He got rebuked by Jesus rebuked by Paul. And then, I mean, he was all over the place. He did the, you know, denied Jesus three times. I mean, he's all over. So it's not that he's infallible. It's not that he's special. It's that God began to build his church. And the first little rock he slid into place on Jesus Christ was a guy named Peter. And then what he begins to do is slide every other rock right next to him and start building and start building and start building. How do we know that in Ephesians two twenty, the Bible says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. They being used by God set the foundation, but Jesus is the cornerstone on which everything hinges and the force that holds everything together. As a matter of fact, it says it this way, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. In other words, God is building this magnificent house where he will dwell. And it has to do with building through people. First Peter two, four through eight says, all Christians are like living stones selected out by God and knit together. Every time someone gets saved, they get knit together into the great fabric of the household that rises up for God. That is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, 1 Corinthians 3, is very clear that it says that Jesus is the only foundation and no one can lay another foundation. So, in no way is this going to imply that Peter is the foundation of the church. He's just the first member of the found, on the foundation of the church. Does that make sense? So, what do we mean by church? Because there's a lot of loaded terms in here. Here's ultimately what it just said. And I tell you, you are a rock and on you who's built on me, I will build my church in the Bible. Church is never a building or an organization. It is always people. It's the called out ones. It's, it doesn't matter whether we have a building or we don't have a building. If we are together, the church is present because the Holy Spirit dwells, indwells His people. Therefore, when we all gather, the church shows up. That's the whole point. It's not about um, organization; it's about organism. Right? It's that we are the body of Christ. And so it says, and I tell you, you are a rock and on this rock with me as the cornerstone, I will begin to build all people throughout all time that are my sons and daughters into something that I will dwell in my temple and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is where we also get lost. I've taught it. I believed it. I saw it for a long time that this was a spiritual warfare passage. It's actually not really. Really? Here's why. It's bad translation. It doesn't say um and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It says and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And you go, whatever, Hades, hell. No, that's actually different. Here's why. Hades is the Greek version of the Hebrew concept of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead, good and bad. As a matter of fact, in literature, around the same time, this phrase is used a lot and it always means the same thing. The phrase gates of Hades always refers to death. So now what does it say? And upon you, Peter as the first member. I'm going to have a whole bunch more members that are going to join along with you built upon me as the cornerstone and death will never shut you down because my people never die. So his whole point was, I don't care who comes against my church. Well, even if you martyr us all, death can't hold us. We don't die. So we will always keep moving forward. We will always advance. The kingdom of God will always grow and expand because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the keys to death and hell and said, now death has no mastery over us. The enemy has got nothing on us. And now death, where is your sting? I got the keys. You can't kill us. And then it says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean the keys of the kingdom as if now Peter gets to make all the decisions. It's that Jesus owns the keys. Who's he letting borrow the keys? But the church. Why? Because you give to a good steward stuff to watch over and you go, well, that's a terrible idea. Don't ever give people stuff. They're lame. (laughs) Well, you're probably right. However, God keeps doing that in the garden of Eden. It was God's garden, but he allowed Adam and Eve to tend it. Um, in the same way, God's it's God's gospel, but we're out there sharing it. Do we mess it up sometimes? Yes, absolutely. We do. But God loves to work through his people, work through his creation in the same way. He grabbed Peter and said, Hey, come here. As a spokesman of the church, I'm telling you that I'm giving the keys to the church to be my steward. What does a steward do? A steward makes sure in the King's house in the morning, he opens the door and at night he closes the door. And in any other time, he ushers in and says, the king is that way. That's what stewards do. So what are we to do as a church? We are to unlock things for people and we are to let them know that it will be locked soon. Therefore, the whole idea is that we're displaying the gospel. Peter, how did he, what, unlock things and lock things? Peter was a spokesman that launched Pentecost message where 3000 people got saved in one day. Peter was the one who preached when the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans. Peter was the one who preached and the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. Peter was the one, right? That was what he was saying. Listen, kid, you're leading my charge on how the church displays the gospel and you're unlocking all these things that everybody else used to be condemned to hell. But now because of the gospel you're promoting, everything's unlocking all the way around and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Once again, we still have this idea that it means spiritual warfare. I need to be very clear. The idea of spiritual warfare and the power and authority of the believer is taught heavily in scripture. It's just not primarily here. All right. This is an easy one we try to grab onto. I'm going to blow up a couple of these today uh, that we normally like to just grab and memorize. This is actually not one of those. Here's why. That's another bad translation. In Greek, the words jump all over themselves. They double up and they're written in a certain way as to reverse order of things. And this is the best translation. And whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. What's the point? The problem with the way we read this is we think we get to tell heaven what to do. Everybody on earth, hey, I'm going to make God do this. I'm going to say, this is what happens and God has to back it up. I'm going to write the check. God has to cash it. We know that's not right. You know that you're never in charge telling God what to do, right? So actually the better translation is, whatever is God's will, he'll carry it out on earth and you will be the one to deliver that message. You will be the one to launch and unlock and do everything according to what, you know, God has already said in his word. So if you say to someone, the time is now, it is time to get saved. Today is the day of salvation. You didn't come up with that. You pulled that out of the Bible and you said right now I am unlocking in front of you. The very thing that God has already unlocked in heaven. He's waiting for you. Come to him right now. That is what it means. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Timing. He still has some more things to do. All right. So let's keep going. Uh, let me let me let me cite one more thing, just so y'all understand that this is not a spiritual warfare passage, but it's a church authority kind of passage. Matthew eighteen fifteen. God uses this again, and you're all familiar with that passage, and that's another one we get wrong. This is what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, just between you and him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's pause right there. What's the context? church authority and discipline, right? We all good on that? Because this is talking about if we have disagreements or we have a hurt towards one another, there is a proper protocol to go through by which God will move through the authority of his people. Yeah. All right. Now, if that is the context, it colors everything after it. Listen to what it says next. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We keep making that a prayer passage. It's not a prayer passage. It's a church discipline passage. What does it mean? It means, and where the church is gathered, God will move through them to keep things in line. He's saying, listen, y'all need to keep some organization to this whole thing, and I will reveal my will through my church. Now, is it true that God answers prayer and it's powerful in getting together corporately? Yes, it is. Just be careful what passages you're using, right? All right, let's dive back into it. And then he says something we've referred to in prior weeks. It says, and he said to them, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I told you that every time this is said, it's followed by the same story. This is that story. Now, about six to eight days after, after these sayings, Jesus took with him, Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves to pray. Now, where did this happen? We have no idea. Why? Because there's a couple mountains. The traditional site, if you go over there is Mount Tabor. That is wrong. It's not even in the area. It's more likely Mount Hermon. But did he really take him to the top of Mount Hermon? That's 9,200 feet above sea level. Mm, Probably not. So it's probably on the side of the mountain. And what's interesting is they went up there to do what? What's the last two words to pray? They went up to pray. Why did Jesus need to have prayer time? Where we're at in the story of Jesus is we're now turning the corner to the last year of his life. Now, trust me, that doesn't mean our series is almost over. Everything happened in the last year of his life. So we're still in for the long haul. All right. We got a whole nother year of this. So just understand. Um, as they turn the corner, Jesus is about, everything starts getting thicker. He fights with the religious leaders. The cross gets nearer, all kinds of stuff get intensified. And when he was about to turn that corner, he needed to go on a special trip with his dad to make sure he was doing everything that his father asked him to do. So he was withdrawing, grabbing the disciples, allowing them on another field trip to see something so they could help him lead when he was gone. But what you're going to find out is every time they hung out with him to pray, what did they do? They fell asleep. (laughs) Right. So if you ever feel like, man, every time I pray, I fall asleep. Maybe you're a disciple. Maybe you're an apostle. Maybe that, you know, because every time they're like, oh, Jesus is going to go on, man. I'm out. (laughs) You know, they fall over. Now, the reason why I mention that now is because they usually when they fell asleep, it was evening time. I want you to picture this story in the evening, because it's going to change how you visualize it. Watch what happened. And as he was praying, Jesus, he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is where we get the word metamorphosis. It does not mean change in appearance. It means change in form from the inside out. He didn't do a Moses where he saw God, reflected God in a shiny face. It was an internal morphing into a whole different form. This is a big deal. How did he look? The appearance of his face was altered and shone like the sun, and his clothing became radiant like glistening metal and the sunlight. It was intensely dazzling white, emitting light out into the world, white as light as no one on earth could bleach them their best friend just started glowing. Imagine if it's evening and how bright this is. If the sun has gone down now, all of a sudden you have him shimmering and shining and almost like a star, a Nova goes supernova inside him and begins to explode out with light and behold, seriously, check this out. there appeared to them two men who were talking with Jesus, Elijah and Moses, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What? Not only did their best friend just go shiny Now all of a sudden, two guys show up that didn't used to be there a second ago, and they know who they are. Were they reading name tags? Was it the license plate? What was it? I don't know, but they probably looked and they're like, nobody dresses like that. That's Elijah, right? Because they know that he had that kind of old school look, the, the John the Baptist camel's hair, right? Belt around his waist. They're going, that's Elijah. And the other one, they're like, that's Moses. And they're tripping out and they're already asleep, so they're just trying to get their bearings, and they're like, man, there's people showing up and there's glowing stuff and they're, I mean, they're completely scared out of their minds. Why Elijah and Moses? Moses is a representative of all that is the law and Elijah is the prince of the prophets. You now have the law and the prophets ministering and bowing down before Jesus. Why? Because the entire gospel of the old Testament shines towards Jesus everything in the old Testament points towards one direction. Jesus, 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 Jesus. So sure enough, you have the two big dogs of representation of the old Testament. And here they are ministering to the great one. This is not an equal thing. This is Jesus being ministered to by Moses and Elijah bowing down to him, knowing who he is. And they're talking about what they're talking about the cross. The Exodus, what is the Exodus in the old Testament? It means when God led his people out from bondage and slavery and led them to the promised land, right? Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He then took all of our sin and showed us how he would lead us out of our bondage and slavery to sin, to head towards his presence, which is deliverance and freedom in heaven. And they're talking to him about it. Hey, Jesus, we get it. We understand dad, your your father says that this is what you're right in line. This is what's going to have to happen and blah, blah, blah. They're having all this dialogue with him. What's a drag is by the time these guys fully wake up, the conversation is over. They missed most of it. Look at the next line. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him and as the men were parting from him, meaning now they're leaving. Well, as they're parting from them, Peter has to say something. Peter said to Jesus, rabbi master, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, you know, we could totally make three tents right here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying for, he didn't know what to say. He was terrified. You know, all the other disciples just clam up and Peter's like, blah, 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 blah. I got to say something. Why did Peter want to make them little shelters? You know, some people will go, well, those are tents, you know, and the the Feast of Tabernacles comes up periodically, and and Israel, they live in booths for seven days, and so he was trying to have a religious ceremony. No, I don't think so. Maybe. Here's what I think he was trying to do. Say, please don't go away. I I think in his heart, he wanted to hold on to that moment. I think he was thinking, no way, that's Moses and Elijah and my best friend Jesus is totally glowing. Can we hang on to this? I don't want to lose this. Have you ever been in a a time with the Lord where you just felt everything was right and everything was peaceful and you felt the presence of God and you felt connected and you felt like, yes, this is what it's all about. And you didn't want to go away. I think that's what Peter was struggling with. Why did Jesus just rebuke him last time? because he said, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. We can do another way. We'll make sure you don't have to go. Just hang in with us. Don't leave us. And Jesus said, stop it. Why do you keep trying to hang on to the past? Don't hang on to the present. I'm taking you somewhere because here's the thing. Here's why we should always be okay. Letting the glory dissipate because there's more to come we always think that that was it. That was the big movement of God. That was the big time. Oh, I remember back when I was in college. Oh, I remember when I was a young person. Oh, I remember when I had this experience. And I remember when I was, hold on, God's not dead. Are you telling me that he doesn't have more stuff? Are you telling me that his infinite creativity, he doesn't have more for us to engage with, that he doesn't have more things to blow our minds, that he doesn't have more intimacy to have with us and encourage us and to love on us. It's all right if the glory dissipates because more glory is to come. And Peter couldn't understand that. you got to understand, he was putting up three shelters. And in his mind, he's like, well, maybe it's, you know, that's cool. There's three big dogs together. And I think at that point, Jesus is going, we're not talking about equals. We're not equals here. So, kid, I don't even think you know what you're doing. This is the other funny line. Look at the next line. And as he was still speaking these things, God cuts him off. Why do you got to cut off Peter? Because he won't stop talking. <laughs> Peter gets cut off a lot. And God's like, okay, hey, 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 right? You stop talking. And he's still speaking these things. Behold, seriously, check this out. A bright cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Right? What's the point? Y'all know what a cloud is, right? Y'all know in the Old Testament what the cloud means, right? That's the presence of God. I mean, we're talking about Mount Sinai cloud descends. We're talking about the Ten of Meeting, the cloud descends. We're talking about the dedication of the temple and the cloud descends. We're talking about a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. We're talking about the actual presence of God. When Jesus Christ returns and his second return, when he comes back again, he comes riding on the what? On the clouds. Why? That is the presence of God manifested around him. And they know that when the cloud shows up, here comes God. And the cloud comes in, they're freaking out, going, I don't know, here it comes, right? And it's coming all around them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, my chosen one, my Messiah, my anointed one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At Jesus' baptism, a voice came out and said the same thing. If God says, listen to him, what are we supposed to do? Listen to him. And when the disciples heard the voice which had spoken, they suddenly fell on their faces and they were terrified. I don't know if you've ever been in any intense presence of God. It's unsettling. It's the, I don't know if I want to move, because if God's voice speaks, there's nothing you're going to say in argument. The very author of truth is speaking. And in an instant, he's the only thing that matters doesn't matter. You can't manipulate your way out. You can't think of an excuse. You can't argue. Everything he says is pure truth. What are you going to do with that? Uh, you're going to fall over. That's what you're going to do, right? That's your only option. Notice how Jesus responds, but Jesus came and he touched them and he said, rise and have no fear. That was just my dad talking and you're all right. You're with me. We're good. And when they lifted up their eyes, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded and charged them to tell no one the vision, what they had seen until the son of man is raised and had risen from the dead. And they kept silent and told no one in those days what they had seen. Who does that include? The other disciples. Okay. So how does this really practically work out? you come back in, right? You got Bartholomew. Hey guys, glad you're back. We got to get a move on. I know. I appreciate you guys having your own little trip. That was awesome. Okay. But anyway, you're back with us now. So we got to get going, 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 going. We're running out of daylight. Peter, why do you look like that? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Usually you're Mr. Go, go, go. Now you're like, Oh, I saw a ghost. What is wrong with you? I mean, what did you see? John James. Come on, you guys cough it up. What do you got Andrew? They're holding out on us. What do you What did you guys see? What? Nothing. Oh, you saw nothing. Really? Did you now? I can't talk about it. Oh, you can't talk about it because you're the inner three. You guys get the special little things. All right, whatever. Come on. Seriously, just cough it up. They couldn't talk about it. You understand how irritating? That's why I think they wrote it down. They're like, Jesus told me I couldn't tell you. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. He told me I couldn't tell you. I'm writing it down in the best selling book of all time. Just so you will know. Right? Because <laughs> how would it have gone? Jesus needed to raise back from the dead to prove who he was because they were never going to believe it anyway because it would have sounded something like this. Oh my gosh, you guys, you can't believe you were there. All of a sudden, Jesus was like, and all this stuff was coming out of him. And he was like shining bright and everything. And he was like, well, where'd that come from? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, he was totally. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. How do you know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. I just knew it was Moses and Elijah, right? Oh, what were they driving? Chevy, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I don't know, man. I mean, it's a whole thing. I mean, anyway, they were there, and then we were like asleep. And how could you sleep through that? i don't i don't know all i'm saying is then i woke up and then i saw him shining and i saw them and then and then peter he starts going off he's like and he starts talking about all this stuff and i'm just oh my jaws on the ground. and I... <laughs> the rest of the guys are like whatever i'm glad you had a fun little issue going on with you and jesus but they're not going to believe it what's the point of all this Everything you just heard about the stunning glory of Jesus Christ is merely God's condensing down the glory into a way that a human being can actually see it. That was a little tiny crushed down version. What's the point? Oh, he's bigger than that. He's infinitely more beautiful and majestic and greater than that. He is God. And what it says is that when we see him face to face, the only way we can even contain it is because our bodies are transfigured. Our bodies are transformed so we can behold the glory of God. And for the rest of eternity, you're going to say the phrase, wow. Does it matter that we keep growing in the Lord? Does it matter That we have intimacy with God. Does it matter that we keep chasing after him and reading his word? Does it matter that we keep listening for his voice? Absolutely. We're talking about God. We're talking about God wanting to be with his people. We're talking about God making a way for us to hear him. We're talking about God walking with us. We're talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. This is the Christianity that is exciting. If we have ever allowed it to be a dry information gathering, we failed. We serve a living and active and shocking God. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for loving on us and, and Lord, your intense glory. May we magnify you, make you as big as you are in our minds and to everyone else. May your worship rise up in this place. That God, the one thing we desire is your presence. That you would be here with us. And whatever that means is great because you are the one that knows better. So Father, if you just dwell in this place and move on our hearts and transform lives, that's awesome awesome if you want to show us who you are more so we have more awe that's excellent and so god we submit to you we love you we we give our lives afresh to you and we tell you that we know it's all about you may you be glorified in jesus name amen have a wonderful day we'll see you next week